We'll see if there we go. All right, now I feel better already. As I was uh, doing some reading on uh, this text, I came across the story of uh, D.L. Moody, who had uh, asked a visiting preacher to come and preach uh, at his church in the man started the first of a week series of messages on John 3.16. And his topic was, For God So Loved the World. Second message, same text. Third message, same text. Finally got to his final message. And he once again came back to John 3.16 and that text. And Moody goes on to say that it was in that final message that the words of the text finally sunk in to his heart and dramatically impacted and changed his life. And I say that because I've taken three passes. I really could take several more uh, through the, the teaching of the scriptures on this whole matter of the church at Ephesus and love that is lost or abandoned. But I have found myself that the more time I have spent here, the more that there is to see and the more there is to learn. So I would encourage you to keep working on this particular text. When I come to scripture, I have a, a, a little bit of a different approach. In seminary, we learned observation, interpretation, uh, application, uh, correlation. And I sort of do that, but, but my approach has always been to read the text over and over and over again and, and obviously make certain observations, but in almost every instance, that text presents me with certain problems. And, and those become the questions that haunt me uh, throughout my study, and I don't feel like I've arrived until I have some answers to them. Now, I'm going to make a confession to you. The, the statement that is made about eating of the tree of life in the paradise of God that question was one of the lingering ones that didn't get answered too soon. And so I kept pushing it off. I think I finally come to, to a solution in my mind, and so I can now speak to that question. And I would have to say that when you're studying the Scriptures, even when you're preaching them, there sometimes are questions that just don't get answered. And you just have to put those on a shelf somewhere and, and deal with the fact that perhaps in time God will make those answers apparent or you get to ask your question when you get to heaven. So I want to uh, work on some questions from our text and it is not hard to come up with questions from any of these uh, messages to the churches uh, of Asia. And so I'll focus on several of those as we, as we conclude this little section on the church at Ephesus. Uh, I should say as well that I've done some adapting in my notes and I may tiptoe through portions of your PowerPoint. And the reason is, as I was back getting ready and as I even look out that window, I think the rain is beginning to turn to sleet and you may really appreciate the fact that I end at 12 o'clock rather than 12.15. And I, I don't want to be too fatherly in this, but I wouldn't linger too long. I would get 
at the building, I would say your goodbyes and hit the road because it may be starting to freeze out there and it would be uh, good to get home safely. So here's the first question that, that comes to my mind, uh, and that is, how do our Lord's words to the other churches help us understand what he is saying to the church at Ephesus? Remember it says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church as. Not to the church singular, but to the church plural. And he says also in, in chapter 2 that all of the other churches, when he deals with Thyatira as he will, all of the other churches are going to take note of the fact uh, of the way in which God deals with sin in his church. So other churches ought to listen and look and learn from what takes place uh, in churches beyond uh, them, but churches that are addressed in, in this uh, particular book. You notice uh, several texts, and, and I also mentioned uh, 22.16, where again, at the close of the book of Revelation, there is a reference made to the fact that this book is written to the church as, church plural. Uh, I noticed a few things, uh, for example, uh, when you come to that word overcomer, to him who overcomes, when I read the words in chapters 2 and 3, I discover that every church has a word of promise to an overcomer, to one who overcomes. So if I want to know what the promise means, and I really do, to eat of the tree of life and the paradise of God, if I want to know what that means, then I need to have it set in the context of what is the consistent way in which uh, the promises are made to overcomers uh, throughout chapters 2 and 3. And a, a very pertinent uh, issue that will come up in, in my dealing with uh, the church at Ephesus is that expression, I know your deeds. That expression, again, is repeated throughout this, this instruction to the churches. And so it helps me to better understand what that particular statement means in the context of uh, the church at Ephesus. When I look at the other churches, I think I said this last week, Ephesus is headed for Sardis. That is, there is a kind of progression, a downward progression, I grant you, but a progression that takes place uh, to some degree. And so while Ephesus has abandoned or left its first love, uh, it still has some, some vitality and life there when you come to the church at Sardis. It has the reputation for being alive and for being effective and successful and whatever the inwards of evaluation are. And our Lord says, you're dead. So I think that you could say that Ephesus, if left to itself, is sooner or later going to be a Sardis, perhaps even a Laodicea. Then you have the church at Thyatira. The church at, at Ephesus is a church that has these works, that has perseverance, that has service, but in no instance in, in the case of Ephesus is it ever said that these things are growing or increasing. No reference to increasing love, increasing perseverance. 
When you come to the church at Thyatira in verses 19 and 20, it talks about having these things and growing in them. So we, we say to ourselves, aha, Thyatira is moving in the right direction. They are. But unfortunately, they're moving too far and too fast. And so we see at the church of Thyatira, and we'll look at that more carefully later, we see in the church at Thyatira a church that has taken love too far. Uh, that is, love as they perceive it. And now they are the church that is so loving they are tolerant of sin and false teaching. That is the kind of love that one ought not to be proud of, and yet the Corinthians, remember, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, they were actually proud of the fact that they were harboring within their midst somebody who was living clearly in sin. But they thought that was the loving thing to do. The, uh, the church at Laodicea, I think, gives us a sense of even greater peril. Now, it's, it's, it's certainly a disturbing thing to be told that your lampstand will be removed. But in my way of thinking, it doesn't match being told you're going to be spit out of somebody's mouth. So Laodicea has really gone down the stream. So as I look at the church at Ephesus and I look at the other churches, I have a sense of, of kind of having my bearings and, and I'm hoping that you will, uh, you'll recognize that too. That is in no way meant to minimize the evil that we see at the church of Ephesus. It is simply to put it in perspective in terms of the evils that we see elsewhere in other churches. Next question. What does our Lord mean by coming and removing their lampstand? There would be some who would say that that coming uh, was the coming of the second coming of our Lord to remove the lampstand. When, when I look at the word uh, come as it's used in, in other churches, for instance in Revelation 2.16 with reference to Pergamum, he says, I am going to come and I am going to make war with you. That sounds pretty serious to me. Um, and... Then you see in Sardis that he says that unless they take heed, he will come like a thief at a time they do not know. Now, one could, I suppose, take that to refer to the second coming, but it seems to me in the light of what we're reading in, in uh, Ephesians, in the church at Ephesus in, in chapter 2, it seems to me that what he is saying is he will come to them in the sense of bringing a judgment or discipline upon them. I do not personally see that as a reference to his second coming. And if you notice, there's a text in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17 where Peter says, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And, and in that context, he's talking about the church in its suffering and its persecution. And, and it seems to me he's saying that is God's purifying work in the church. So in my opinion, when he says he is coming and he is going to remove the lampstand, he's not talking about the second coming. Now, in terms of removing the lampstand, it, it seems to me that that is, is certainly something that we must take seriously. 
I got to looking back in the Old Testament and, and the way in which the lampstand, you remember, was set in, in the tabernacle and it was to be lit every night so there wouldn't be darkness and, and so on in there. It seems pretty clear to me that it's speaking of the fact that the church is to be a light in a dark place. The church is to have a discernible distinctiveness about it that represents and presents our Lord Jesus Christ to the world. And so I go back in my mind to Matthew chapter 5 and the words of our Lord there in verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it become salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It seems to me that when we cease to live and walk in love, we cease to be the light that reflects our Lord as the light of the world, that we cease to to present the gospel in a distinctive way, and I think he's saying the church becomes irrelevant, maybe non-existent as we would see in Turkey today, but it becomes irrelevant and insignificant in the work of God. And that ought to be a frightening thought, I think, to, to all of us who name the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, next question. Why the promise of eating of the tree of life in paradise? Um, That one I I confess to you that I had been putting aside. The first thing I notice is this. It is a promise that is made to those who overcome. It is a promise to overcomers. When I look at the other letters that are written to the other churches, the overcomer always seems to be a believer in Jesus Christ and one who has faithfully endured the difficulties and the trials of life and the temptations of their day and they have, let's say, finished well. They are those who God finds faithful when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. They have not succumbed to the evils, the temptations, the outer pressures that have been placed upon them. In every case that I see in these uh, two chapters, the promised blessings for the overcomer or heavenly blessings, or eternal blessings. In other words, he is not promising earthly uh, ease, success, prosperity, whatever it is. Um, This text wouldn't make a good prosperity gospel text, folks. But what it is saying is, when you faithfully endure the adversity and difficulties and temptations and trials of this life, and there will be many, then God holds forth the eternal reward, and in this context, the tree of life is the reward of eternal life, that is, living forever. And I was thinking back about that when I reread the text in, in uh, Genesis, 
about the tree of life, and in particular in chapter 3, when God prohibits Adam and Eve from going back. Remember the angel that guards the, the tree of life? The reason is so that they would not re-enter the garden and eat of the tree of life. In other words, they were kept out of the garden to be kept away from the tree of life. I got to thinking about that. What if somehow they'd snuck under the fence? You know, in some way, they had snuck under the fence, gotten away from the, from the angel that was guarding the way, and eaten of the tree of life. You know what that would have been? Hell. Would have been hell. God graciously kept men from the tree of life in their fallen state. Because hell is living forever away from the presence of God in your sinful state. And if you want to add one more to it, with a bunch of other sinners. It would have been a horrible thing. So God guarding the, the gate to the tree of life was, was an exceedingly uh, gracious thing for him to do. I say then God brings history full circle uh, in the sense that it starts and it ends in the garden of God. Isn't that right? Don't you get this sense of completion when you read the book of Revelation? Here you have the tree of life that we read about early in Genesis, the tree from which Adam and Eve were then kept. Interestingly, the tree was a desirable tree so long as men were innocent and could fellowship with God and eat of it. But the minute that they sinned, that tree now was a terrible threat, a horrible possibility of an eternal future, uh, in effect, of term torment. When you then come through Revelation, you see the promise made that those who overcome will eat of the tree of life, that is, they will live forever. They will have access to that tree which men have been barred from up to this point in time. And, of course, in chapter 22, there we find it. Here, they are. Here it is, in paradise, and it, its leaves have, are healing for the nations. So in a sense, there is this symbol of eternal life that we will enjoy, those who are overcomers will enjoy in the presence of God. So I got to thinking about that. And it seems to me that, that revelation with all of its symbolism is meant for us to ponder things for a while. So I was thinking about the, the, the garden and reading about it. And remember, there were two trees in the middle of the garden. Lots of trees. Every tree, it says, that God created was desirable to look at and desirable to eat from. So when Eve looks at this tree, the tree of the, 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 the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is the tree that will produce death, when she looks at that and sees it as desirable and whatever, it's no different than any other tree. They are all desirable. That's the way the scripture describes it. It looks desirable to her because of what Satan has told her. So what you have is two trees. They obviously have not eaten of the fruit of either. So how would you know the outcome of eating the fruit of those trees apart from what some authoritative source told you. So it all boils down to, do you believe Satan and what he says will happen? You will surely not die. Or do you believe God? When you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will die. Which one do you believe? 
there really is no data until after the action has taken and and the reality is you have to choose they had to choose who would they trust satan portrayed that the tree of death was really the tree of life the amazing thing that he does and this this baffles me the amazing thing that he does is with those two trees right before them he somehow distracts the attention from the tree of life and now all the focus is on this tree which will produce death and the knowledge of good and evil now what's interesting to me is how easy it would have been had they just gone to the tree eaten the tree, eaten the fruit of, of the tree of life and you know it looks like they're off and going doesn't it forever that one incident set into motion this whole scheme of history that we see where god now is going to give men a knowledge of good and evil through all of the years of history through all of the stories of the scripture we now have this full account and now we're in the last book of the bible and we see this final triumph we see the outcome that eve and i guess probably not even adam saw and that is there was going to be a great conflict where satan is going to be dealt with once and for all so in chapter 20 you see him tossed in and put in bondage and so on and then of course there's the lake of fire where satan and all of his angels are going to go all of those things come to a culmination in the book of revelation and it describes the blessings as those which were initially offered to men but through all of this mess and it seems to me one of the lessons is you know it really would help if we just listened to god wouldn't it what a lot of grief then you you see all the middle eastern struggles and you see abraham and sarah and hagar and you think man If you just trusted God it would have been so much easier. But all of this is to say history has come full circle. All of this is a part of God's plan, God's program, and now all of the pieces fall into place because of what he has done and in particular because of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the big question for me. Why the emphasis on works? the more the more i read this word of our lord to the church at ephesus the more works i see and and for somebody who's big on grace and big on faith i have to admit i break out in a cold sweat and i say wait a minute wait a minute where's faith and where's grace in all of this why the emphasis on works well here's what i would say number 1 doing those first works is the third imperative not first doing those things that you did at first those first manifestations of love is the third and i might say the final thing that is commanded here it is introduced by remembering from where you have fallen and repent so when we come to this The emphasis yes is on works. You have to say it is, but it is not to the exclusion of the whole issue of faith and of repentance for that is where the change of heart it would seem to me is coming. 
And I must also say, repentance and works are inseparable. If there is genuinely repentance, then there will be works. If there is genuine faith, James says, then there will be works. Is that not right? Works is what follows. It isn't what produces our salvation, but it is what follows faith and it is what follows repentance. So look with me back in Luke chapter 3 with old John the Baptist. And these people are coming out from under the rocks in order to be baptized. John has preached a baptism of repentance. And so here come many people. He baptizes them. And then uh, along come <laughs> the scribes and the Pharisees. And he's got some words for them. Verse 7 of, Matthew, of Luke chapter 3. He therefore began saying to the multitudes who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bring forth fruits in keeping with your repentance. And do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. In other words, don't make this a matter of genetics. I'm looking out and I'm seeing snow. <laughs> I'll hurry right along. There is the need to have evidence of repentance. And John says... I don't see it. I'm not baptizing you because I don't see any evidence of real repentance. And then as the text goes on, you know the question is, well, then how do we know that? Well, if a man has two tunics, he ought to share one. Tax gatherers, you ought not to collect more than your due share. And I could say things about that, but then there's this one, the soldiers. Don't extort. Don't extort. Don't use your power and force to gain money. So repentance is followed by evidences of that repentance, which we would say would be certain actions, or you might even use the word works. Love, like faith, cannot be expressed or experienced by others without works. I was not so shy, but I'm going to I'm going to think back in my in my boy uh, my boyhood days. Was there ever for you, young men? Was there ever some young lady that just it was just your heart was just smitten by her, and you just thought she was the neatest thing in all the world? You thought you were in love, but you never did or said anything about it. What results? Nothing, right? Nothing. Love that is felt but not dealt with in terms of actions is of no value. That young lady, maybe she would have loved to go out with you on a date. It didn't do her any good that you felt good toward her unless you picked up the phone and asked her out. That's the way it works. So love like faith, must be expressed in order to be experienced. Now, there are a lot of texts, but John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And, and uh, that plays out. John 21, I thought, was a really interesting text. And that is, here's Jesus with Peter. Three times. Peter, do you love me? You know, every time, now I know the word changes and all that stuff, but the bottom line is, do you love me? Peter affirms that he does, but Jesus says to him, if you do, 
This is what it will look like. Take care of my sheep. Take care of my sheep. That's how you know whether people, like Peter, love their Lord, whether they care. First uh, John chapter 3 is a great text. First John chapter 3 and verses 16 through 18. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's good and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Love, in order to be real, needs to be experienced and expressed. And that's why the emphasis, I believe, in our text. Now, I say D, I didn't want to do a whole new projection, so I've got a whole bunch to go under that, and you'll just have to write it on your paper somewhere. I've been rethinking the deeds of chapter two and th- uh, verses 2 and 3. Revelation 2, verse 2. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and you have endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I think virtually every commentary that I saw or any, any uh, sermon I heard on this, they would call this the commendation part. The commendation. And then there is the rebuke. That's the part I'm rethinking. Is it a commendation? You know, when I taught school, one of the things that I tried to do was to give the students the impression I had eyes in the back of my head. So I would go maybe out in the hall or whatever, and I'd come back and I'd say, Johnny, I know, I know what you were doing. Do you think he said, oh, good, I'm so glad? You know, he, he knows. If I know, it's not necessarily good. We probably say that to our kids. I know what you've been doing. That means it wasn't so good what you've been doing, and I know that. When you trace that expression, I know, and you look at it, he'll say, I know where you live. You live where Satan dwells. Is that a commendation? Good choice. I don't think so. It's simply saying, I know how things are where you are. Now, the reason I have to struggle with this is if he is commending them for their deeds, then why is the, 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 the solution deeds? I'm, I'm beginning to think that good deeds can be done for bad reasons. You could, for example, all on Matthew chapter 6, you could be performing your acts of righteousness so that other people saw them and praised you. Alms, prayer, fasting, right? People say, man, wow, look how spiritual that guy is, or that person, that woman is. 
You could do the right things for the wrong reasons. You could do it out of greed. You could do it out of guilt. You could do the right thing for a lot of different reasons. But I would suggest to you that anybody who is really discerning at all can tell the difference between the right deed with the right motivation and the right deed without it. Husbands and wives. I, I've, I've heard all kinds of stuff about, you know, how a loving husband is supposed to do this and that, wash the dishes, do that, you know, all kinds of stuff. I guess I don't have dishpan hands. <laughs> oh, that ought to tell you something. But anyway, we have a dishwasher, that's why. Um, but the reality is, husbands, your wife knows when you are dutifully doing the loving deed and when you are lovingly and joyfully doing that deed. And so I'm not so sure that it's always the deed that matters as much as the motivation that goes behind that deed and that inspires it. Exactly the same thing could be said with respect to wives. Doing what we are supposed to do only because it is our duty is not enough. And I have to tell you, husbands know it. So either a husband or a wife knows dutiful compliance and sees the difference between that and joyful compliance. And therefore, I am inclined to say the deeds that were referred to in the early verses of Revelation chapter 2 are deeds that may have been the right thing, but something is missing in them. Isn't that what he's really talking about? It isn't that he's saying, wow, you've done this whole bunch of things, and there's a couple of other things you could add to it. That's the deed you did at first. I think he's saying, when you have that love that you had in the initial stages of your coming to faith, there were not only deeds that were manifest, but there were attitudes. Now, let me hasten to say, some deeds do fall by the wayside. Some deeds do fall by the wayside. And we ought to take note of that. And so there may be things they used to do that they are no longer doing. They need to do that too. But in the midst of all of this, I see that there is a problem somehow with the way in which and the motivation with which they're doing it. I found this text. Somebody really mentioned this to me, and I'm sorry I can't remember who it was to give him credit. But it's a text that I love. In Isaiah chapter 58, here is Israel going through the motions, doing the right thing. And, and it's talking about how the Israelites are going through mechanically. They're going through this fast before God. And now they're saying to God, in effect, okay, I've done my part. Now, why don't you do yours? Where's all the blessing that I expect you to produce because of what I've done here? <laughs> and God says, you're right. You have been doing those things, but you haven't been doing them for the right reason. You've been doing those for your own benefit. It isn't really love. It isn't really sacrifice. So let's get down to the, 
last part of Isaiah 58, where the Sabbath now comes in focus. I call the Sabbath, and you know when I've preached on this before, the Sabbath is a form of fasting. The Sabbath is a time when you set aside those things that you normally do, and in fact those things you may prefer to do in the flesh, in order that you may devote yourself to God and to the pursuit of spiritual things. Now, look what it says then in verse 13 of Isaiah 58. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord. Isn't that the same thing? Isn't he saying, if you really love me, if you are really motivated by love for me, then you will take delight in being with me and you will joyfully, joyfully set aside other things to make time to express that love and devotion. And I'm saying to you, not only does your wife or your husband know the difference between dutiful carrying out of, of, of uh, requirements, God knows it even better. And what God is saying to Israel is, you know what? I'm really sick and tired of mere compliance. You know, sort of like what we do when we pay our taxes. I mean, yeah, we fill it out and we send it in, but I don't see anybody doing hallelujahs on April 15th. We just do it. Well, God's not content with that, and I believe the church at Revelation has somehow gotten into that repetitious, dutiful, business as usual, and something's just fallen through the cracks. And what's fallen through the cracks is that heartfelt love and devotion toward God and His people and the lost to where there is an energy to what we do. Uh, because we love him. Time is getting short. Snow is getting thicker. And I will simply say this. On on point number six, what's the relationship between chapters one through three and the rest of it? You know, Jeff, I I lost him somewhere out there, but Jeff Goins really said it better you notice, in other words, how does all this stuff relate? How do the, does the rest of Revelation relate to chapters 2 and 3 and the way in which churches ought to conduct themselves and behave uh, as a church? And Jeff said, in effect, that you've got two frames of references, don't you? You've got two realities that collide in our life. That's exact. I couldn't think of a better way to describe the book of Revelation. To me, that's just a perfect description. You've got two realities. The one reality is persecution, suffering. For some, it is death. But there is this whole this world reality in which those people lived and in which we live. And there is the heaven re, heavenly reality. And what Revelation does is it keeps holding out for us. Here is the ultimate spiritual reality. That is what energizes 
This, this worldly, fleshly reality in which we live and the Christian life is bringing those two together. And so when somebody in, in Ephesus or Laodicea or wherever it is says, why should I live my life like that? <laughs> Revelation says, because there's a tree of life. Satan is going to be doomed. Those apart from Jesus Christ will live eternally away from his presence. All of those things are realities that inspire the life that we ought to live. And so I want to end maybe with just this one point of emphasis. Are we growing in our love individually and as a church? Or are we stagnant? And if we're stagnant, we're declining. The ideal church is a church that is growing in its love. It ought to be greater than it was at first. In that sense, <laughs> the poor church at Ephesus looks back at, at those the, the place from which they have fallen, and that's their point of reference for how far down they've gone. The church at Thessalonica, it's the opposite. The way they were at the beginning is the benchmark to measure the progress that they've made from that point onward. That's the ideal for the Christian, is growth in those areas of love. And I believe God puts things in our life which gives us the opportunity and the challenge to do just that. Well, the things that we're doing, just um, mundane repetitions of the same old, same old, you know, that can happen. It can happen in our worship can happen in our witness. It can happen in every area of our Christian life. We're dutifully carrying out the action. But somehow that spark of love is missing. That's what I think this text is calling us to remember and thus to repent and to renew those things that once characterized us. If you're here apart from Jesus Christ, this is not a message to you about trying harder. This is really a message to Christians about what they have become because of the work of Jesus Christ. You'll never achieve that which God requires for eternal life. That's his doing. But it's that love which led our Lord Jesus to the cross so that he could bear the penalty for our sins. And it's that love which inspires us to be like him and to live sacrificially as well. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this day. We pray that you would show us those areas, uh, many though they may be, where we have fallen short of that love which characterized us as new believers and certainly of that love which characterizes you. We pray that you would make us to be people who are known by our love. Give us opportunities to demonstrate that this week, we pray. And I pray even now as we travel home that you might give us safety and travel as, uh, as the weather uh, continues to deteriorate. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.